Welcome to the Star Love Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Beck, the Oracle in New Orleans, founder of Inner Makeup Astrology. To learn what I do, visit innermakeup.net. And today we have Anne Beversdorf. And Anne is the author of Vedic Secrets of Happiness and has been a professional astrologer in the counseling realm since 1993. She combines both Vedic and Western astrology in each consultation. And in addition to spiritual development and predictive work, her consulting includes Vedic astrological remedies, which we'll talk about. Anne has received a Lifetime Achievement Award for Astrology from Marquise Who's Who and has recently been an honored speaker just this year at an international astrology conference in India in February. She has read at nearly 20,000 charts. Wow, that's a lot. That's getting into like Price is Right Showcase Showdown, huge <laughs> numbers. <laughs> that's a lot of years. Yeah, it's amazing. In her nearly 27-year practice and has frequently published articles in The Mountain Astrologer, International Astrological Magazine, and a dozen others, large and small. Anne is currently the librarian for the Alexandria Project's Internet Accessible Astro Catalog, which has about 15,000 entries to date. And you can find that at www.alexibase.org. That's alexibase.org. Anne received a BA magna cum laude from UT Austin, and holds a master's in library and information science from Indiana University. She has lectured internationally and has a global clientele, and Anne is always welcoming new clients. You can find her at stariel.com, that's S-T-A-R-I-E-L.com, and her email is Anne at stariel.com. And you also have a website, it's um, sacred-threads.com, correct? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to get into that as well. But first, welcome, Anne. How are you? I'm great. And it's great to be talking with you, Dan. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. So how did you get into astrology? Oh, that's a good story. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I had a friend who had a beloved astrologer in New York. The woman had later moved to Colorado. And my friend was nagging me constantly to see her astrologer. And I finally got tired of the nagging and stopped by Denver on my way home from a business trip and got a reading. And I, I thought I was just doing what I was gonna do. I had taken with me the birth dates of my employees. I had an um, educational software sales and mm-hmm. consulting business. And so I took my employees and the birthday of my company, and this woman said, she looked at these five people, and she said, this person is trying to steal your business. Oh, dear God. <laughs> and I said, I don't think so. And she just shrugged and looked at me, and she said, yeah, he is. And oh, then, no. the date you started your company is okay. You'll always make your bills. But if you changed it, and she gave me several other dates, you will be holding the rudder and your staff will be doing the paddling and you'll make a lot more money. Hmm. So I went home considering my duty discharged. And about three days later, my secretary, which was the word at the time for your Hmm. next line person, (laughs) um, said, so-and-so, whenever you're out of the office, is talking to your exclusive suppliers trying to get your territory. Hmm. So there he was, trying to steal my exclusive territory. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So I got rid of him, and then I thought maybe I better change the business date, and I did, and I didn't realize it was going to cost a lot of money to close a corporation and open mm. a new, which had me worried. But within six weeks of starting the new corporation, I'd made more money than the previous 18 months. Wow. So I said, I need to learn more about this. Wow. So okay, well. Well, why don't we, you know, why don't we talk about that? Because, you know, I love having people on the show who have varied, diverse and interesting backgrounds. So you have different degrees from UT Austin and Indiana University and in library science. Um, But what what was your work life before you became a professional consulting astrologer? Well, I was... um librarian for a number of small what they call special libraries and one of them was in a place where they were experimenting with the apple II computers to see what might be able to do in education and i started teaching people basic programming in apple II computing Mm -hmm. and then um I, i got a job with educational technology or, um, oh, well, it was a technology company. I can't remember the name of it. It's changed its names a couple of times since. And then I thought schools need to know more about computers. And I wrote a mm-hmm. proposal, which the director of the School of Education thought really ought to be a legislative bill. And he got one of his top writers to rewrite it in a way that would be a legislative bill. And I ended up being the information provider for that company that was set up by a a legislative act in the state of Indiana. So I was putting out the newsletter and collecting materials in a a software library for educators. And then I got a call from a major software publisher for education, which is long out of business. And they needed somebody in California. They had never had anybody outside of the state of Minnesota. And I was their first outside employee. And it was a salary for a year. And then it was independent where I had the territory, California and Hawaii. And then I had a couple of other software providers. Scholastic was one. And that's what I did. And so that's kind of the track that I was in. Mm -hmm. And then this thing came up. And then shortly after not too far after, the whole software market changed because it went from every school having Apples to every school having Apples or IBMs or Macintosh. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So the software companies were now having to program in three different languages, which which affected costs, profits, everything else. And they were trying to shut down extra expenses and they offered me half my territory at one half the commission rate, which was a 75% cut. And I said, no, thank you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sabbatical and just started studying astrology like mad and published an article in the mountain astrologer and started getting clients. And here we are. Wow. It was the Pluto, okay. it was the Pluto story. It was Pluto. When Pluto says, I have a story about Pluto, which starts with a proverb, which is the only difference between a rut and a grave is how deep do you dig it? Mm. And wow. Pluto, 
I really believe is a benefic if you pay attention to it right. Because what Pluto wants is for us to follow our dreams and not curdle, and curdle up in a rut. And so when a rut becomes dangerous to you, Pluto starts throwing the shit in. And there, excuse the language, but <laughs> um, if you imagine your rut being this deep hole in the ground and you've decorated it with your, you know, white furniture and your aquarium and your glass sculptures and then a dog starts walking around the edge and starts barking nonstop day and night. You don't think I have to get out of my rut. You think I got to get rid of the dog. And the dog doesn't go away because dog is Pluto's emissary. And Mm -hmm. you might even think of him as Pluto because there is a dog called Pluto. Mm -hmm. And then the dog says, well, my barking isn't working. And so he starts scrabbling in the dirt and digging like dogs do and throwing dirt and rocks down into your rut and breaking your aquarium and your glass sculptures. (laughs) And you're throwing the rocks back because you're really ticked off. And then he says, well, that didn't work either. But, you know, I've got a friend with a sewage truck. (laughs) Oh, my God. And then he brings the sewage truck, dumps it in, and you either drown in the sewage because you refuse to get out. Most people get out at that point, And you have nothing left. And you're angry, and you've got two choices. Look at the dirty hole and stand in your smelly clothing and be angry, or take off the clothes, look around, and see what's out there. Mm-hmm. And that's... And, the sooner you make that change, the sooner you crawl out of that hole and look around you, the sooner you will find your bliss. And I'm really talking about bliss to the level of, I never imagined this. Mm-hmm. I never dreamed of it, but it's happened. And that's what happened with me in that whole job situation. Because when Pluto squared my sixth house son, this whole problem with the company started coming out and they're you know taking my territory and all this other stuff, and I was fighting it. I was studying astrology at that time, and I kept telling my teacher, what are they doing? It's not fair. And he just would walk out of the room every time I started talking. And I finally said, why won't you even talk to me about this? You're not even listening. And he just shrugged, and he said, you're just playing Pluto with each other. (laughs) (laughs) And so I stopped fighting. I got a bad contract. I just refused to sign it. And the refusal to sign it, compared to my friend in New York who was in the same business and had the same choice and did sign it, ended up being a $100,000 difference in in the money I made because the old contract gave me a three-month commission at the old rate, and the new contract gave a one-month commission at 25% of the rate. She signed, Mm. and they they, um, terminated her. Mm. So it was a hundred thousand dollars difference. Okay, so Pluto, just so so you know, I think a lot of people who know astrology would understand what you're saying. But you know, Pluto in astrology is generally thought of as quite malefic, quite, and it is quite destructive. It's atomic energy. To be honest, it's the planet that does rule trash and ex- excrement. So it is kind of the stuff, you know, you got to take out the trash kind of planet. But then, yeah. you know, in, I want you could I want I want you to talk about that a little bit more. But I think one thing that I haven't heard anybody in astrology talk about, although I'm sure somebody is, but when we got in those images really recently of Pluto, the image that came in was of a broken heart. 
So I found that quite symbolically beautiful that, you know, yeah. maybe there's this this under the surface pain that we don't want to deal with up front in order to do Pluto's work that is being demanded of us. And you're actually saying, well, no, it's Pluto is benefic in the sense that if you do that work, it is massively wonderful and blissful. And yeah, yeah that's a, I well, I could talk about that. Cause that is, yeah, I think that broken heart is compassion. Mm. I think what Pluto, I remember talking to Rob Hand shortly after 911 we were sitting together at a conference and it was it was real recent this 911 thing and he said you know i had a client who worked in the 10 in the twin tower in the towers and for the last 2 years i've been telling her you have to leave your job she hated her job she was miserable she didn't want to leave because it paid so well and he kept telling her mm got to leave it's it's your life at risk here you'll die if you stay mm. and she stayed and mm. she died oh dear and he said you know that's when you're when you're looking at symbols you don't know how they come out i mean mm. generally a person dies of a heart attack or something like that when they're in a job that they hate but she she was murdered mm. wow and so Pluto, yeah, does have a dark side, but what they're trying to let you get rid of, to force you to get rid of, is um, Pluto is wanting us to let go of our attachments, and the particularly the attachments that hold us back. I, um, this, it's an ego thing, and it's surrendering the ego connection. I was listening to somebody the other day talking about how they were really, really ego bound in the fancy cars they drove. And then they realized it was an ego issue. It wasn't about anything else. It was just ego. They identified with the fancy car. And so they quit and they just started driving beaters. And so what Pluto is wanting you to do, let go of is the ego attachment, which is holding you back from not only your growth, but your bliss. And when you when you let go, the bliss is what comes. When I let go of this work, I just said I was on sabbatical and I was studying astrology full time. I mean, 10 hours a day, charts mm. and me, books in hand. And and then I wrote an article and became an astrologer. I mean, it was all doing something I loved. It isn't always the case that the first thing that engages your passion Obsession is a Pluto word. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. So you can be obsessed with watercolors. Doesn't mean you're going to be an artist. But if you follow a positive obsession, it will lead you to the next positive obsession. And it will lead you in a very deeply satisfying way to something that's extraordinarily meaningful. Okay, so that takes me to the next question. So you definitely have a creative background and your yeah. your early childhood, your parents were both classical musicians and we'll right. get right. So how do you think that that influenced you? Well, I know neither of my parents were literalists. They always thought in symbolic terms. And the way I see astrology being done well, it's in terms of symbols. The difference between a symbol and a definition is 
and a lot of people will read, you know, like an astrology cookbook, this is what Saturn does in the first house, and they will take that as a definition. It is an expression of the symbol that Saturn represents. And so thinking, well, being brought up thinking in terms of symbols made that kind of understanding of astrology very real for me. Um, also, my dad was pretty open to unusual ideas. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't, there was no, he was very much an intellectual. He was a composer. Um, but he he was open to ideas that were not in the mainstream. He had Neptune conjunct his son, so he was he was definitely into music, and he was definitely into the outer realms. Mm. But he had Capricorn rising, so he was also a practical man. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, see, that's interesting. So I wonder if we could define that for people. So you said, okay, Saturn in the first house, you know, that's X. So yeah. it would perhaps that would be, you know, if we use it in musical terms or put it, you know, analogously to music, it's the difference between looking at a score and analyzing it and looking at the page and seeing, okay, that is a C major chord versus the sound that rings when one plays a C major chord or the C major chord in the context of a piece of music being played and one playing it or hearing it and participating in it. Is that, would you say that that's a good way to put that? Yeah, I would say that a beginning musician, which I am, (laughs) (laughs) I look at a score and I look at the notes Mm -hmm. and I try to figure out how I'm going to play this piece on the piano because I'm not a very good pianist and I'm looking at it analytically. Very good musicians can look at a score and hear the music. That's the symbol of the score. Mm-hmm. And when when you look at a chart, in the early stages, you're looking at all the pieces. In later stages, when you've been doing this a long time, and, you know, it's I'm approaching 30 years, um, you look at the chart and you see, you feel the chart. And that is, people will say that's intuition. I think intuition is based a lot on experience, right. plus just the little, little extra charge that the intuitive mind can bring you. But it's mm-hmm. it's experience where you look at this kind of chart pattern and you go, oh, I get this. Mm-hmm. And then when you're explaining it to the client, you're going back into each of the separate symbols again. You know, that's wonderful. You actually made me think, because I think in a very multidisciplinary way, and people know this who listen to the Star Love podcast, but the behavioral economist Daniel Kahneman, he talks about sometimes intuition is actually masquerading for experience. So it feels like intuition, but it's actually because somebody like yourself, having done the Price is Right Showcase Showdown number of charts, you know, the 20, 30,000 charts, um, that it actually is experienced. But then you're right, there is still that intuitional, in the moment, you know, the sort of playing of the piece of music that you're able to pick up on it through that quick thinking mechanism. So it, that's a really, really great point that you brought up. It's um, it's understanding the whole symbol. It's, well, like a, a good medical diagnostician they, a person can walk in the door and they can immediately say, ah, they've got this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it feels like intuition. 
and it is intuition. If you, when I started doing astrology, I tried not to be intuitive because I was trying to be analytical. Mm-hmm. And I gave myself a break after about ten years and started. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> and started adding the intuitive. I do try to tell people when I'm reading their charts, this is an intuitive piece of information. I don't know where I'm seeing it in the chart, but mm. I just I want them to know that one is a product of analysis and the other is a product of intuition because they can be wrong in different ways. You know, this is so interesting because I was thinking about this earlier today in a certain context, but I had a similar feeling and, you know, you've got a lot of years on me and I've, I have a way long way to go, but when I was first doing readings, I felt like every time that I was doing a reading, I was like jumping off a cliff because I felt Mm -hmm. like, well, who am I to do this? I don't have nearly the knowledge or experience that say people like yourself have, you know, who am I to do this? I remember when I first started out, I would write a whole essay for everybody just to sort of prove that I did my work. You know, I put that, and I obviously I still prepare a great deal for each reading, but still I was really set in a very analytical mindset where it was like, this has to be an exact science that I, there's some sort of proscription and objective way to do this. And if I'm not doing that, that it's wrong. So it's, it seems to me, you know, I was thinking of the Roman God Janus, the two headed God. (laughs) So it's kind of like, it seems to me we might be coming into, or at least for me personally, this idea that there is this analytical objective side to astrology, but it needs to function also with the intuitional practical side of it, that there, there are two heads that function at the same time, but they can never quite really get on the same page. Do you think that's a good metaphor, maybe? That's a very good metaphor. Um, it's it's a fascinating field to be in. And, and the learning process, I mean, I remember when I first started reading charts, I felt like everything I learned, I had to apply to this re- reading. So I would do mm. the solar return and I would do, oh God, every technique you can imagine. <laughs> The readings would sometimes be like three hours long, and both the other person and I were exhausted when it was over. You know? Right, right. Oh and my God. I'm at the point now where, depending on the chart and the situation the person is, I may look at only one facet of the chart mm-hmm. and not even talk about anything else. I mean, one thing I'm frequently saying is that when Pluto was on your sun, don't tell me that. Venus going into your fifth house didn't bring romance. You wouldn't notice it if it came. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> when you when you break all your bones in a traffic accident, somebody handing you an ice cream cone doesn't mean much. Right. Oh dear God. It's, <laughs> that's that's true. That's a good one. You know, they, it's like. Yeah, because, again, Pluto is really, so people understand it's atomic energy. I mean, it's so powerful. It's related to, you know, what what's, I, I've, I'm embarrassed, the tower, is it the tower, tower card that Pluto exemplifies that, you know, sort of crumbling or implosions, this, this type yeah, of, yeah, this, yeah. this, this, this type of energy. I think of yeah. power to Uranus because it's, it's. Right. But it's it actually works with Pluto too. It's death and rebirth. That's what Pluto is. Right, right. And it requires when you're going through a Pluto transit a death and rebirth. We're going through a major Pluto transit at this time in the world because we're having 
Pluto, Saturn, Mars in the North Node and Pluto, Saturn, Mars and Jupiter in the North Node were all right together in Capricorn when this epidemic got out of hand. Mm -hmm. And believe me, this epidemic is going to change the world. Right. Yeah, I think so, too. You know, the and we were talking about this yesterday, but I think, you know, and obviously there's so much Capricornian stuff to talk about. Mm -hmm. But I think that, again, I just hardly hear people talk about this. The whole point of some of those eclipses from the end of last year and um, and then this year is mm -hmm. that the North Node has been in Cancer. So it's really karmic future being cancer, which is home and family and the hard shell that protects the fleshy, emotive feeling yeah. interior. And then that's related to the tarot card, the chariot, which is how do we process forward in our own lives, yeah. you know, with the protection of some sort of shell. So that that's very different than Capricorn, which is all about structure. And like you said, your father was a Capricorn rising, so practicality, Earth, how do we have structure as emblematic or is embodied in different institutions, the structures yeah. in our lives, so it, all of that weight there, but still moving forward to this more emotive place. Um, but that, so this is a huge transformation right now. It really is. It really is. There's all this discussion about whether we are in or approaching the age of Aquarius, and I don't know. I, I, pass on the discussion in a way and argue in another way. Um, when, when you're talking about astrological ages, we've taken the whole great year cycle and divided it equally into what, 25, 2200 years per sign. But right. if you the, the constellations in the sky, they're not all the same size. Right. And right. Pisces is huge and it overflows onto Aries and it right. I mean, it overflows onto Aquarius. And, and so I think when you're looking at the sidereal horoscope of the world or of the precession, we're going to be in both Pisces and Aquarius for a while. Right. And I think this Capricorn mess, where the next thing is all these planets move into Aquarius, I think that's when we're really beginning to shed the Piscean age. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I I have some thoughts about this. I think it's beyond the the scope of the podcast today. And I want to get into again that you know, you said you use a different a lot of different techniques, but specifically how you approach different kinds of astrology. But there's an astrologer, I don't know if you've heard of him, Terry McKinnell. Maybe I could get him on the show, but he he contends that we entered the age of Aquarius around 1500 because of the he doesn't use the exact degree on this ascendant, but the last constellation that was visible before the sun rose, which I think, it, again, it puts us, um, I think I said that clearly, but the, it puts us the age of Aquarius starting around 1500, which to me makes a lot of sense because that was, you were getting the printing press, you were getting, you know, all the stuff that was happening in the Renaissance, you were getting, you know, English language as you know started to be defined by Shakespeare I mean you had it really you know sort of some of the precepts of modernity um so I, anyway that's that's a whole other discussion it's, it's but kind of it's a different discussion of how do you derive the ages right the classic way is what is the constellation in the sky on the first day of spring right right and right now it's definitely still Pisces right I mean, it's definitely still Pisces. 
In fact, it could be 400 years of Pisces if you want to be specific about it. Right. That's a, again, we, we this is a whole like you said, it's a whole long conversation. Maybe we could have we we can do a whole podcast on that. But okay, so so you you know there there are all these debates in astrology. I mean, like anything else in life, it's human beings. But which is the right way to do something? So but you, so you have an interesting experience in that you use both Western and Vedic astrology. So Vedic astrology being the astrology that comes from India, Western obviously coming up from you know, Western culture, but how do you use both of those types of astrology in your practice? What's happened with Vedic astrology and Western astrology is we're looking at a difference in the history of the traditions. Vedic astrology is an unbroken tradition. They have the same rules, the same precepts that have been passed down for, I'm suspecting something like 10,000 years. They were written down in, well, after the age of the printing press. They were written down, well, before and after, between the 12th and and 15th century. But they're very, very old precepts, and a lot of people learn at their parents' knees. Instead of nursery rhymes, they learn astrology rules. Mm. And a lot of those rules are very ancient and completely out of date. So... The rule that says you will be the owner of 10,000 elephants (laughs) is actually meaning you will be a very wealthy person. But the, the, the yoga, the definition of that pattern says you will be the owner of 10,000 elephants. K. N. Rao, an Indian astrologer has been, has been spending a lifetime. He's very old right now redefining these old precepts to say, what do they mean right now? There's another one that says, this person will be a prostitute. Well, one of Rao's students, Mark Boney, has done a lot of studies of actors. And many, many actors have that pattern. And they are literally selling their body to the public. Right, right. So you have to be aware of how things change. Before World War II, we were making automobiles. We're probably the major automobile company in the world, the U.S. And then the war came and we won and we bombed Japan out of existence. And Japan had been making trinkets to sell to the Western countries. And then Japan said, well, we've got to rebuild. And they started building automobiles that just outraced in quality and features, the American ones, because they didn't, they weren't stuck in an old-fashioned system. It took mm. them decades to match the quality of the Japanese cars. So the same thing happens with Indian astrology compared to Western astrology. We have a broken tradition in Western astrology. It's been broken over and over and over again. And every time it's rediscovered, it is rediscovered in the mindset of the culture, century, time space of its rediscovery. So modern Western astrology is big on psychology, on transpersonal astrology, on spiritual aspirations, spiritual growth. And Indian astrology isn't. You ask a great Indian astrologer, what is my purpose in life? And he says, you don't have a purpose in life. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know that's not that's not an that's not a rational question 
That's very interesting. Um, so, but how would you say you apply uh, Indian astrology in your practice, and how would you say you apply Vedic, or excuse me, Western astrology in your practice? Western astrology gives me a good insight into the psycho-spiritual processes of the person. Mm-hmm. And Indian astrology gives me an excellent view of timing and basic life considerations. So in Western astrology, for example, there was a chart that Nostradamus had for one of the King Henrys about his being killed by um, something piercing the light. And this king, on a certain date, and on that date, the king was killed in a jousting demonstration. It wasn't even a serious joust, where the uh, lance splintered and the splinter hit his eye, which is a light, and entered his brain, and he, he died of it. That chart today in a Western system does not look like a killer chart. But they didn't have the kind of medical advances, and they had a different culture of well, we don't joust today either, you know? <laughs> right, right. We don't take to the streets with swords and you know, I guess have a duel in the street. So his interpretation was based on the culture, jousting, swords, and the the medical situation at the time and the fact that they didn't have the transpersonal planets. I use transpersonal planets a lot, but only in the Western chart. Mm. Um I I can't handle, I just can't handle how to use them in the Indian chart. Um, simply put, you could say, oh, if you've got Pluto in the fifth house, there's going to be an issue with children, but that doesn't tell you very much. I'd rather just use it in the Western chart. The Indian chart is very specific about how the houses and the house rulers interact. And if Saturn is... They use whole sign houses, and if Saturn is at zero degrees of a sign, it is in the house of that sign. It is not in the other house. I was explained by one teacher that houses have walls, and if you have a lamp in your house and it's behind a wall, somebody can't see it on the other side of the wall. So this very, very specific and a lot more rigid, but the rules have been set up around that specificity so that they give you very clear outcomes. Mm-hmm. I use a Western approach in India, talking to Indian astrologers who have not worked with Westerners. They're very didactic. I think I told you the other day, one astrologer told me that I had a child who died. I said, I've never had children. <laughs> oh, dear. And then did, didn't you say he was still arguing with you? He's like, no, 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 but you had a child. And you were like, no, I really did not have a child. Yeah, right. <laughs> and he was looking at some rule. And astrology is an infinite subject. There are always more techniques you can learn. Sure. And well, this is, oh, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. And this is actually what I want. This was a point that you said earlier, which I think will lead into something else as far as your creative where, oh, well, of course, astrology is creative, but your the artwork that you do. But the reducibility of one aspect, you were saying when in your early part of your career, you would 
do a three hour reading and bring the kitchen sink to a reading and you were exhausted and the client was exhausted. But now sometimes you'll just look at one element of a chart and ruminate on that. And then the reducibility of that aspect as being something that's infinite. Cause if you keep reducing something down and down and down, you just keep going down. So could you talk about that? The infinite nature of maybe just meditating on one aspect in Western culture and, well, in Western science, we think of infinite in terms of largeness, but infinity also goes in terms of smallness. You can get deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into the subject, and when you get in deep enough, it looks just the same as when you get bigger and bigger and bigger. There's a brilliant young physicist, well, maybe not as young as he used to be, but um, called Nassim Haramin, and as a child, he was riding long bus rides to go to school, and he just sat there, and he started looking outside and outside, and he could see his bus, and he was, you know, out of his body looking down, he could see his bus, and he could see his country, and he could see the earth, and then he was getting farther and farther and farther out in the sky, and then later on that same long bus ride, he started looking inside and he said, it looked exactly the same. It looked mm. exactly the same. So what we've got is a holism in nature that Western scientists have, we've learned about the world by dividing things up. And astrology is unified. And I think one of the reasons so many different kinds of astrology work is it's a it's a hologram type system. If you take a hologram and break it into little pieces, each piece shows you the whole picture. It's just smaller and blurrier. That's amazing. So you are also an artist and you've woven tapestries in the past. Now you do petit point. <laughs> oh, sorry, I messed it up. It's it, the French is petit point or petit point, uh, which is needle point. So, you know, when you're weaving, I mean, it's someone who's a lay person here, but you're using and you said you wanted to get back to having your hands touch the fiber as opposed to having a loom. So yeah. you're dealing with small materials and, you know, doing things on a very granular level. So could you describe how that might be analogous to how you weave? Uh, I know you didn't want how you weave with a chart or use a very small aspect in a chart to reduce something down in a very small way, but then in a very infinite way. I'd never thought of it that way. That's a really beautiful way to put it. Um, I, I love detail work. I, I love detail work. I'm doing a lot of work now because my eyes can't do the petty point anymore. But <laughs> it's, you know, taking a thread and making a piece of cloth out of a thread, it's, it's the idea is just it just boggles my mind. And I've used that theme in a lot of my work because I think that when I do the petty when I did the petty point, I was doing mantras as I was doing it and there was a feeling mm. I I was using medieval Christian manuscript images and then I was using Tibetan um, teaching images from the Dalai Lama's well, I guess it was his schoolroom. And then I was using some um, um, Hindu imagery. 
and they had different feelings. The Christian imagery was all in terms of devotion, just selfless devotion, and you get lost in it. It was a beautiful mood to be in, and the Hindu imagery seemed transactional. Interesting. I'm, I'm doing this Ganesha, and therefore Ganesha will treat me well. It wasn't a thought. It was a feeling. It didn't feel worshipful. It felt like a deal was being made. Interesting. I mean, one doesn't necessarily think of spirituality that way. But but I guess when you do get into sacrifices and divination, there can be a transactional nature. Like, look, I'm sacrificing something here. I need it back. So yeah. I, I, I think I remember, see, you might know this, or and I, I'm not sure if I'm correct about this, but in Egyptian culture, I'd heard that they used to have like sticks or whips and if the gods didn't do what they wanted them to do they would actually whip the statues wow well hellinger who started uh constellation family constellation work he said some people look at god as a lover some people look at god as a father Mm. some people look at god as a business partner interesting very (laughs) interesting he said I don't think any of these is what God is, but we all we look at it in a different way. And I think the Indians very much see the 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 stellium of gods as business partners. Well, I've got to suck up to this one to make him feel good. And that's really how the remedies work. You're sucking up to Genghis Khan and he treats you well. Mm-hmm. So and, and that, the Buddhist ones seem very intellectual. They mm-hmm. went on it, it was like it was a mental process. And frankly, I enjoyed, I'm not traditionally Christian, but I really enjoyed the devotional feel of the Christian imagery. It, mm. I just, it just appealed to me more, but it doesn't mean that's better. It just was, it appealed more to me. Right. So, so that, you know, let's hold that, the, the Vedic remedies, because you do do, you have a whole book. What's what's the title of the book again? The um, Vedic, Vedic Secrets to, to Happiness. Vedic Secrets to Happiness. So people can check that out. Vedic Secrets to Happiness. And also check out all of Anne's amazing artwork. It's www.sacred-threads.com. And you can look at all this stuff that we're describing. But, you know, I want to thread a needle. I don't think I did that that well. let's Let's thread a needle into the idea of either the fates or Athena or, you know, especially the fates weaving something that's faded or if Athena spins something spins you know you know an edict from the goddess that that this is an idea of something very faded that the fates are spinning something and that right in my mind is coming up the word atropos which means against a turn whereas tropos is a turn so there's this idea that there is fate happening there is the spinning of cycles, but then there is a way that we can actually handle the cycles that gives us some free will agency. Interestingly, there there is there are instances where one ironically accepts prophecies or accepts fate and then tries to defy it and it doesn't work out because tacitly I think one accepts what the nature of the prophecy is. Like I, I was reading this book, Circe, it just came out. The author, she has degrees and classics, all this, and Athena tries to actually defy uh, prophecy, and mm-hmm. then she ends up fulfilling it. 
So whereas Cersei, the witch, ends up doing magic and witchcraft, and she's actually able to change uh, fate. So I I want to get you this this brings us to the, the and I'm I'm just interested because you had said at one point you felt like in another life you were a Greek astrologer. <laughs> so I wonder I just want to get your take on and it's a very complex question but fate versus free will or fate and free will how how do you approach that um, you know I guess in your life and with other astrologers or with, rather clients excuse me. Yeah. Well, with fate and free will, the Indians have the best set of answers that I've ever encountered. And basically they have a lot of different kinds of karma. And I don't remember the Sanskrit words for them because I don't use them, but there's one kind of karma that is a fixed karma. You could say if if you are her village chase on, on Fantasy Island and your entire height is four feet, you're you are fated never to become an NBA star. <laughs> but if you are somebody else, a 5'8", there are a couple of 5'8 athletes who have become in NBA stars. So they've overcome a great challenge. There's the fixed fate that you can't change. There is fate that is stuck but can be changed with effort. And then there's free will. And Total free will means really you accomplish nothing. You are not fated to be obsessed by this subject. You are not fated to follow this. Um, it's it's when there is no option in a chart, there is no fate. Mm. And so the the trick of remedies is that you are looking at the parts of your chart that have a little bit of wiggle room, and then you're doing your Athena, Sarasvati, whether you, whatever tradition you're in that has multiple gods or multiple saints, what we are doing as humans is characterizing a theme of the world, a theme of life into a personality. But all of these personalities are part of personalities of the world as part of the whole pattern. But it's handy to separate them into different things. So when I was writing this book on remedies, it seemed to me that these planetary energy spheres were really like gigantic energy bubbles. Mm. And the Saturn energy bubble will carry loss and oppression and prison and dignity and respect and... Um, discipline and self-discipline, there are all these things that it contains. But there are things that it doesn't contain. I mean, if you were to read, as Richard Tarnas points out, if you were to read um, As You Like It, it's Jupiter. And if you read King, Year, King Lear, it's Saturn. There's no mixing those things up. Mm-hmm. So, and of course, we're talking about the Shakespeare plays. So I, I, so this, this isn't, okay. So... Okay, great. So, so one thing that I, I was, you know, I, I spun to your website and found you in a really fun way. And I, I'm very interested because you actually write about chaos and astrology and fractals and that there is, a re as you say, a regular irregularity in, mm -hmm. yeah, and that we can actually benefit from that. And that's actually a way to 
talk to skeptics even i think you were writing and that actually so a couple things let's can we talk about the sort of benefiting from disruption and chaos and then also you write about your brother too that he was like not interested in astrology at all but then you were asking him about a transit and it ended up happening but that maybe this is a way through sort of fractals and the and the replication of nature to talk to skeptics well it is in a way although i don't really try to talk to skeptics you know they can think whatever they want to think okay <laughs> but what what you see, for example, progressions is literally a fractal system. Mm -hmm. So when you say if you're 30 days old, that's going to be a chart of your 30th year of life. That is literally a fractal system. And then also when you look at fractals, the only time you get major change is when you have major chaos. Mm. So that's a pattern too. And another funny thing about fractals is if you look back I was looking back at my life and seeing, you know, because my teacher was introducing me to forward and backwards progressions and graphic ephemerides and things. And if you look at like what happened when you were three years old, my sister was born when I was three, what just a few days before I was three. And then you look at what happened when you were six, my world expanded again with school. So what happened again when you were 12 and you just keep doubling those numbers, which is a fractal pattern, and you'll see themes that are the same. And I was asking people about it, and there was this one girl, and she was saying, oh, I'm really, really having a hard time figuring out what my direction is in life, and she was like 25. And I said, well, what happened when you were just over two years old? And she said, oh, my grandfather died, and he was my number one caregiver, and it devastated me, I still remember. And every time I saw a man with a beard, I ran over to him because I thought he might be my grandfather. Mm. And I just didn't know what to do. And I said, okay, that was 25 months. Now you're 25 years old. So you're going to find this pattern repeat. And I did it with my own life. And you can look at any big event, good or bad, in your life and then multiply that and then multiply it just you can just add that number of years again and see what happens in these these predictive periods. It's a fractal pattern. It really is. So, and, yeah. yeah. And we're, so, and we're talking about sort of things like the golden section or what, like how things replicate in nature. And th these are very different kind of patterns than patterns that maybe we try to impose with the mind to create order. Correct. Right. And, yeah. and I think our mind is not our greatest friend. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> we're trying to create order in a way that our mind thinks we should be creating order, which has very little to do with the natural process. Right. Right. The, you know, the, it's funny because I'm um, right. Right. Yeah. Some there's the you know, I'm looking across the the, um, the room right now. There's that old book, The Inner Game of Tennis. Which, yeah, yeah. yeah the, the whole idea about, okay, you need the sort of orderly, rational mind to organize things like, okay, I've got my list of things to do today. But as far as, you know, the guy would have students come in 
And the, if he would really try to fix the shot and be like, do this and da, 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 it just wouldn't work. But then sometimes just naturally the shot would work itself out or just like, okay, just do it again. And da, 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 da. Like it, it's sometimes when we try to intervene, the unintended consequences are worse than what it would have been just leaving it alone in the first place. I, I agree on the, but on the other hand, there are, you know, as, as, as a music student, I played viola for a number of years, <laughs> and my dad made an exchange with one of the professors at the music school. He taught the guy's son trombone, and this guy, who was one of the greatest violists in the world, taught me viola, and I was, you know, rank beginner. <laughs> and he was immediately trying to get me to change my hand positions which was very awkward, but if you do it wrong, you put a cap on what you're able to achieve. Sure. So, I mean, it's it's like you say, it's a game of tennis. We have to go back and forth. Here are the rules. Practice the rules without worrying about getting it right. Then, once you've got the rules down, go for it. Wow. Yeah. So, the, so okay, so... So, okay, so again, this idea of chaos and nature and, you know, and we can look at these cycles through astrology, but how can, you know, most people don't think if you have a disruption that you can benefit from that. But actually, you know, even if you think of in mythology, one book I've been reading really carefully is Trickster Makes This World. And you see this through all cultures, all systems of mythology, this idea of a trickster either wittingly or unwittingly bumbling along and benefiting from disruption, either through, you know, there's like a diamond in the rough that the trickster finds or, so you know, but people, I think, have a hard time, again, the mind seeing chaos or disruption as potentially opportune. So how can astrology help people to understand that disruption can actually be beneficial? Well, it's a good question. I think it it can lead you in that direction. My interpretation of astrology is very Plutonian. I have a Sun-Pluto conjunction in my birth chart, so I kind wow. of put Pluto on things. But the way that it that disruption can move you forward is if you totally embrace the disruption. So I have a friend who lost a number of significant people in her life in the last couple of years. And it's thrown her into depression. And we were talking about how the only way through is to embrace the grief and embrace the depression. And one of the things that helps me is, and this just sounds ridiculous, but one of the things that helps me is mantras because they change your energy. Um, Jupiter and Capricorn, I have... All my life had trouble having faith that things would work out. It's like, okay, I'm fine now, but next week I could be homeless under a bridge, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I'm in my Jupiter Dasha now, and I've got a very good Jupiter because it's a great Parashara exception. I'm not going to go to the details. Most of the Indian astrologers didn't know about that and said I was in a bad period. I'm in a good period. Um because I have faith, and I've never had faith until I hit Jupiter Dasha. And faith 
is not about religion. It's about trusting that bad things happen to create something better. And that's a Pluto story. It's a life story. It's a world story. Um, it's the the chrysalis, the caterpillar chrysalis butterfly story, because the caterpillar locks itself in its own little cocoon. It doesn't turn into a butterfly. It utterly dissolves into liquid. Mm. And liquid turns into a butterfly. And then, as you've probably heard many times, the butterfly has to get itself out of the cocoon. If anybody helps pull it out, its wings don't get stretched and it's unable to fly. Mm. So it's it's got to disappear entirely from any living form that people would recognize, turn into a soup, and then turn into a butterfly and struggle to get out of the shell before it can fly. This is the nature of life. And when I was a child, when I was 13, I had a two-year-old sister die. And that child was, because I know Indian astrology, I can tell the Indian astrologer I never had a child because they don't talk about symbolic children. But right. that was my child. And mom even said she felt like the grandmother. Mm -hmm. But when she died, that changed my life forever, ever. It was the biggest thing that ever happened to me. And then when I had a friend who I learned, my sister's death was a Chiron-related thing. When I learned my friend had AIDS, that was a Chiron-related thing that matched. It was the opposition of when, I, when my sister died or opposition of two years before my sister died. So I knew I would have this friend for two years and then something else would happen. And I kept hoping that it would be a cure and it wasn't. And he lived with me his last three months. It was, it was a gift for both of us. He was very insistent on living with me instead of with his mother. And because my whole life had been shaped by my sister's death and because he'd lost his partner a year before, he, I was the person that he could live with death with. Mm, wow. <laughs> and his passing was so brilliantly beautiful that it healed the pain of my sister's death. So that's part of what builds faith. And I think one thing that we see in astrology as astrologers is we can tell people this is a pattern that leads to something even greater. What, what we can see in the Chiron cycle is that our biggest, why did this happen to me? I don't know how I can ever deal with it again. I mean, my fear after my sister died was that somebody else I loved would die. It was, it was a terror. And then I went through it big time in the flesh, you know, body to body. And it was a gift. So mm. we see these patterns and we can tell a person, this is the hard part. But going through this hard part, here's the time range, will lead you to the good part. And that's, that's what astrology can do. 
you know, it's amazing because I, you know, been looking through all your material and there was a story with you talking about your sister and you were talking about it was like a mile from point A to point B. And your sister said, you say it's a mile, but it would be a lot longer if you straightened out all the hills. <laughs> so the, so this idea that, you know, again, that what we we're talking about, the bumps and the difficult parts um, as, you know, they're difficult, but they do get us to a different place. I was wondering if I could, you know, one thing that I also love about your website, stariel.com, people can go to, is you actually have a poem of your mother's. Would you mind if I read that? Mm, mm-hmm. And I think it I think it elides quite nicely with what we're talking about, but it says, Don't be unnerved, both straight and curved may lead to the same place. I like you all completely furnished with pain and promise. Yeah. So I think that's what we're talking about. Mom's 95 and mostly is is not connected to reality very much. And I have a large box of the poetry she has written over the last 60 years and has not shared. Oh, wow. 70 years, actually. And so going through that, there's some beautiful stuff in there. Yeah. Wow. So so your mother was, or she is a a musician and poet then. Yeah. Wow. She never talked about the poetry. She never talked about it and she never shared it. She had it in a box under her bed. I asked her if I could see it and she said, when I'm dead. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear. Wow. Well, that's about all we have time for. Do you have anything else you wanted to talk about? No, but I, yeah, when I stopped being an educational software salesperson and moved into astrology, it was the greatest gift of my life. I absolutely love what I do. I love it. So, and and I don't, I'm not a great researcher. I'm an inner researcher, I guess. So I like working with individuals, not with, you know, mundane and, how is that true? Because you have a degree in library science and you worked in libraries for all these years. How is it How is it true that you're not a good researcher? <laughs> well, I'm a good researcher, but it doesn't interest me very much. Oh, I see. Okay. So you say, I see what you mean. Okay. I was like, it doesn't, I've been looking at all your stuff. I'm like, wow, there's so much, you know, you delve into. And okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Anne. And the website is stariel.com. Also, you can go see all of the beautiful artwork at sacred-threads.com. Yeah. And, you know, my website is innermakeup.net. And th- today, this is Dan Beck signing off from the Star Love Podcast. And remember, if you love the stars, they'll love you back. That's true. On the next episode of the Star Love Podcast, we welcome astrologer Bruce Schofield. We talk about Bruce's early musical background, his extensive command of the major astrological traditions, and his exploration of the correlations between planetary movements and the weather. Please rate us on Apple Podcasts, and if you're interested in sponsoring a future podcast, email james at innermakeup.net. To support the continued production of the Starlove podcast, go to the Leave a Tip, Make a Wish section at innermakeup.net and make a wish for yourself as well.